0: Welcome to Interesting Times, I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported podcast. To support the show, go to interestingtimespodcast.com. I am not feeling so great today, listeners, so this week the audio might be a little more throat-scratchy, but I do this for you. I love pinball. It's a combination of skill and luck, and it draws you in, and it makes you wholly focused, on the arbitrary and fast and weirdly compelling task of juggling a metal ball with two or more flippers. When you really get into the game, when you're really focused on it, the world kind of falls away. And all the best games, all the best activities are like that. Good video games are like that. Jogging is like that. Climbing up a rock wall is like that. I guess, you know, running away from a large apex predator would also be like that, but I don't want to do that. But the outside world doesn't seem meaningful anymore. You're wholly into just what you're doing. You're wholly into the physical interaction of the ball, the bumpers, and the various obstacles and the targets. It's one of my favorite ways to unwind after a workday, but pinball this pastime I enjoy so much, used to be the object of suspicion and panic. American cities banned it. A mayor smashed pinball machines with a sledgehammer, and in the mid-20th century, pinball was a province of hoodlums and gangsters. So, pinball has its roots in the 1800s, and it is somewhat based on a game called bagatelle, which involved much larger balls than pinball balls, moving about a table strewn with obstacles, In 1871, an inventor in the United States filed for U.S. patent number 115,357, and that patent changed gaming forever. It was called, not pinball, but improvements in Bagatelle. This patent, it introduced a core of the pinball experience. Unlike Bagatelle, which had a flat table, this improvement had a tilted table so that the balls slid toward you. Also... These balls were about the size of marbles, and there was a plunger that you sprung that started all the action, as opposed to simply sliding or dropping balls around the table. However, despite the existence of this early pinball-like patent, this early pinballian adventure in the 1870s, it wasn't until almost 70 years later that the game really got off the ground. There were a lot of improvements upon the improvement and elaborations on this elaboration, And the first really successful pinball machine debuted in 1931, made by the Gottlieb Company. And even then, it was not called pinball, it was called baffle ball. And it looked a lot more like what we would consider a modern pinball machine to be, but there was one thing that it didn't have, that was the flippers. So originally pinball machines, you would pull the plunger, the ball would go, you would jostle them from side to side, and the game was controlled like that. Flippers were only Added later. But I am not here to merely talk about the evolution and the elaboration of pinball machines themselves. No. What I really want to get to is how this machine, this invention, this game was received. So here's where the story gets good. Shortly after modern pinball machines debuted in 1931, American pinball was seen as an instrument of vice, gambling, and racketeering, and it was banned in more than a few American cities. I try to keep this podcast general interest, I want it to be interesting to people regardless of where they live, but longtime listeners will know that I can't get away from occasionally talking about my hometown of Portland, Oregon, and the history of pinball in Portland is what got me interested in this in the first place. Like a lot of other towns in the United States, Portland had its own pinball panic in the mid-20th century. The game was banned in the late 1940s by a progressive mayor and Portland's first female mayor, Dorothy McCullough-Lee. She was a major anti-crime, anti-vice, and anti-gambling progressive. But that's just one example. What happened in my hometown of Portland, Oregon, was only one part of a larger national phenomenon. The first city to ban pinball was Washington, D.C. in 1936, just five years after the game first really took off. But it was a ban in New York City that really epitomized the moral panic around pinball and led to more regional bans throughout the country. So Fiorello LaGuardia, the mayor of New York City who now has an airport named after him, hated pinball. He also hated other forms of gambling, prostitution, narcotics, and sundry other facets of the vice industry. Now, I'm not going to talk about how he interacted with other forms of gambling, prostitution, or narcotics. We're here to talk about pinball. And when it came to pinball, he did not hold back. He called pinball merchants, quote, "...slimy crews of tin horns..." well-dressed, and living in luxury on penny thievery, unquote. On July 21st, 1942, after he had successfully banned slot machines, LaGuardia banned pinball in New York City. He ordered New York law enforcement to round up machines and took great joy in smashing one himself with a sledgehammer. Prior to this, he had smashed up hundreds of slot machines and chucked the remains into the Long Island Sound. And, as a modern person who sorts his recycling... Seeing footage of LaGuardia just chuck machinery into a river, well, that kind of made me wince. But here's the man himself explaining his reasoning for the pinball ban. Quote, the pinball machine racket is a direct outgrowth of the slot machine racket, and, as was the case with its evil parent, is dominated by interest heavily tainted with criminality. There is no difference between the two rackets other than the more subtle and furtive methods of robbing the public. It's profits taken from the pockets of schoolchildren in the form of nickels and dimes given to them as lunch money, unquote. So that right there is one of the most important mayors that New York City has ever had saying that pinball is literally stealing children's lunch money. Now, to be fair, lots of pinball was, in fact, a vehicle for gambling. Many of the same companies that made slot machines also made pinball machines. And lots of pinball machines would give prizes like cigars or tokens that you could redeem at the bar for actual cash. And some machines just cut out the pretense entirely and just dispensed cash prizes. Even when the machine itself didn't spit out cash or tokens or cigars or what have you, pinball was still perceived as a type of gambling because bar patrons would bet on it. They would bet on, say a given player's performance, whether or not they would be able to go over or under a certain score, and whether or not that player could hit certain targets on the playfield, that kind of thing. After that 1942 ban, the game in New York City and elsewhere became the province of gangsters and racketeers, the same sort of people that could get you other types of in-demand contraband. And in a way, this was perfect timing for a lot of gangsters and racketeers. After Prohibition... Alcohol was legal again. Alcohol was the province of actual legitimate businessmen. So what is a former quote-unquote legitimate businessman supposed to do? Well, gambling machines are the new bootlegging. Gambling machines and gambling machine-adjacent amusements, such as pinball, were something of an opportunity for gangsters and bootleggers who had just been kind of left unemployed by the repeal of prohibition. At the risk of sounding like a broken record, I'm going to talk about pinball in my hometown of Portland, Oregon. And I want to stress that this is an example. Uh, This is not the be-all and end-all of pinball criminality in mid-20th century. I am just using my own hometown as one instance where organized racketeering and pinball crossed paths. In 1950s Portland, one of the biggest and most successful racketeers was a guy called Jim Elkins. Jim Elkins was involved with narcotics, probably prostitution, probably also killing people, but one of his biggest revenue streams was coin machines. That included slots, also jukeboxes and vending machines, but one of his biggest revenue streams was pinball. If you wanted any of these kind of illegal machines in your saloon or bar, you would go through him. He was in charge of the maintenance and distribution of a lot of these guys. By the way, Elkins got this job when he started working for the former guy in charge of pinball and coin machines in Portland, a guy called Enlo, by pointing a shotgun at him, saying it was time to retire, and then taking over the man's business. Elkins would eventually become involved in a whole lot of drama. He eventually got into a heated rivalry with the Pacific Northwest Teamsters, started competing with them for who would be involved with what racketeering in what bars and venues, started also competing with them for which designated racketeers would be the ones who are quote-unquote officially bribing the cops and other officials, And and this all came to a head in 1957 with Elkins, Portland's former chief pinball racketeer, and a bunch of city officials getting grilled by a Senate committee looking into organized crime throughout the United States. This whole affair is elaborate and probably not super interesting to people not from Portland. I've previously written about this uh, for the Portland Mercury, and I will link to that article at interestingtimespodcast.com. But I'm talking about this, not because I want to talk about Portland gangsters, but because, again, this is one instance of something that was usual. This was typical. Pinball in the mid-20th century was, in fact, associated with gambling and gangsterism, it wasn't simply hype the way it was with, say, rock and roll and Satanism or comic books and sundry types of moral decay. The association with gambling and pinball was made official in 1957. In 1942, Congress passed a tax on coin-operated gambling machines of $250 a year. That's $250 in 1957 money, so a lot. This tax was irrespective of the profitability or the payout of the machines. And, in 1957, a business owner in Illinois refused to pay the tax. Pinball, he said, was a game of skill. Skill mixed with luck, but definitely skill. Therefore, it was exempt. The case went all the way to the Supreme Court, and the highest court in the land ruled that pinball was, in fact, a form of gambling. And this is why Supreme Court nominations are so important, people, we can get wrong-headed rulings like this. Pinball's reputation changed suddenly and dramatically in 1976, when Roger Sharp made what is probably the most important shot in the history of the game. New York City was having a hearing about whether or not the Guardia's old ban would continue. Other cities by that point had legalized pinball. And Sharp was called in as an expert witness, chosen for his skill at pinball. And he was going to prove that it was his skill not simply luck, that made all the difference. Sharp had arranged for a demonstration. He would show government officials the ball going where he said it would go. Even that first shot, he said, even that initial pull of the plunger, that was an active skill, and he'd prove it. He would call his shot. He told them that he'd pull back that plunger, and he would launch the ball into the middle lane of the machine on his first try. He was successful. The shot went just as he said it would. And, as a pinball player myself, I can say, this can be pretty easy to do on a machine that you've played a lot on and you know all the contours of and all the idiosyncrasies of because every pinball machine is different. But Sharp did this on a machine he was unfamiliar with. Maybe Roger Sharp just got really, really lucky, or maybe he was just really that good of a sharpshooter, so to speak. I apologize for nothing. Regardless of whether it was luck or skill, though, Sharp's shot was persuasive. Pinball was back in New York and, eventually, the rest of the United States. The game flourished throughout the 70s and into the 1980s with new tables making their way into bars and arcades alongside Pong, Space Invaders, and Donkey Kong. With video games making arcades a phenomenon, Pinball flourished. Albeit with the new message for amusement only, flashing on pinball's new pixelated screens. That message, which totally went over my head when I was a kid in 1980s arcades, was a subtle way to say, do not gamble on this. Sadly, the American arcade has kind of fallen by the wayside, and anymore pinball is a niche form of amusement. Companies like Bally and Gottlieb, once so associated with the games, have gone away, And now there are only two real pinball companies out there. There's Stern, which is pretty well established and has made a lot of machines of varying quality, and Jersey Jack. Jersey Jack is a new company, and it's focused on making uh, very shiny, very eye-catching, very high-tech flashy machines that look like nothing that's come before them. Pinball is not a phenomenon anymore, but it's also not considered a public menace anymore. I don't think it will ever be what it was in the 1970s and 1980s, but on the upside, it's also never going to be demonized again. And I do think that as long as we have bored people in bars with some spare change in their pocket, or people who want to unwind after work by losing themselves in a string of blinky lights and things that go ping, Pinball will probably be around somewhere, and I'll probably be right there in front of the machine. If you are listening right now, it means you've listened to an entire episode of me recording while I'm really not feeling that great. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And if you want to contribute to the well-being of me and the podcast, uh, go to interestingtimespodcast.com and sign up for a monthly donation on Patreon. Also, ratings and reviews on iTunes are highly helpful. Uh, Go there. Give us stars and words. Hopefully, many stars and glowing words. Uh, I'm also on Stitcher. And Twitter, at Joe Streckert, joestreckert.tumblr.com, and Facebook, facebook.com slash interestingtimeswithjoestreckert. Click like, follow, etc. Thank you again very much for listening. Talk to you next week, hopefully with a fully functioning voice.